Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is the conclusion of a two-part study of Judges, chapter 6. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter 6. As I wait, you Verse 21, Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock, and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. He's afraid because he, at this point he realizes that he's seen God, in a sense, face to face. And he's going back to what's written in the book of Exodus, that no man can see me and live. And so he's like, oh no, I'm going to die. But God's not going to reveal himself to Gideon, give him a mission, if you will, here's what you're going to do, and then kill him because he's seen him. God's revealing himself to Gideon for a purpose. And that is to inspire Gideon, to help him to be the man of faith that God's calling him to be, and to fulfill the ministry and the mission that he's laid out for him. And then he says, then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and he called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Ophrah of the Abbi Ezrites. And so the Lord receives Gideon's offering, symbolized by touching it and causing the flames to consume it. The Lord departs, and then Gideon again realizes he's been talking with God. And as he's afraid, the Lord again addresses Gideon. He doesn't have to be there physically. He just says to Gideon, Peace be unto you. Fear not, for you're not going to die. And how does Gideon respond? He builds an altar, and understand that when he builds an altar, that's their form of worship. That's like if we all just bust into singing worship songs and stuff. It's basically the same thing. So Gideon is now worshiping God. He's praising God. He's thanking God. What a privilege, because he's an exception at this point. When God said, no man can see me and live, he goes, but I'm going to let you see me. You know, eventually Gideon's going to die, but not today. And he had the privilege of seeing God and hearing God. And God gave Gideon a message of peace, basically, to prepare him for war. Kind of an interesting kind of uh, contrast there. He gives them a message of peace to prepare him for war. You can't fight the battles of the Lord. You can't fight effectively unless you're at peace with God. I've been there where I've gone into battle situations and I've seen lots of other guys do it, that were conflicted. They were unsettled. They had a fight at home or different things going on. And you can see their mind and their heart, they're not in the fight. But when you know that you're at peace with God, when you know that things are right the way they're supposed to be, you can go into that battle with the certainty of victory and knowing that God is on your side. And that's exactly what God does. He prepares Gideon for that war. Unless we're at peace with God, we can't face the enemy with confidence or effectively fight the Lord's battles. Jesus told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, He said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
Jesus gives us the peace to get through our lives, to get through our day, to do the things he calls us to. Sometimes we throw that word peace in Hebrew, shalom. It was the typical Hebrew greeting of the day, but it's not used like, you know, something like, hey, you know, peace, brother, and we throw out the peace sign, that kind of stuff. But peace from this perspective, it means much more than just an absence or a cessation of hostilities. It carries with it the idea of well-being and health and prosperity. When they would say peace and some shalom, it was a real blessing. It wasn't just, hey, I'm not going to fight you today. It carried with it that blessing. And that's the blessing that's being passed on now to Gideon. Then in verse 25, And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. So that same night again the Lord speaks to Gideon. Now it's interesting the process that God's taking him through. God has revealed himself to him. They've interacted. He's offered sacrifices. Now he's worshipped him. And you see this kind of growing relationship to the point now where Gideon will recognize the voice of God. And God does not have to be standing there talking to him for it to happen. You follow me? It's that time he spent with God. Now he recognizes God's voice, and God gives him some very clear direction. He says, take the best bullock, the younger one, and that's because God always gets the best. And he says, break down the altar to Baal. Cut down the grove. The grove is that place where Ashtoreth, the counterpart to Baal, was worshipped. And destroy them. And this is what the nation of Israel should have done earlier. This is what the nation of Israel was actually commissioned to do and had failed to do over the last couple hundred years. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, we read what Moses writes, but this is how you should deal with them. You should destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. God commissioned them to do now what Gideon is doing. Gideon is setting the example. And in a certain sense, because I'm sitting back kind of trying to look at the bigger picture, what does this have to do with delivering the Israelites away from the Midianites? And the bottom line is, unless Gideon is willing to deal with the sin in his own house, he would be useless in dealing with the sin of the people and the nation. If a man can't rule his own house well, if he's not willing to confront sin in his own home, then he has no business confronting sin anywhere else. He has no business trying to rule over others. Ministry begins at home. He's got to be willing to deal with that. And he's got to be willing to deal with the issues of his own heart before he goes out to battle for the Lord. God wants to prepare him for that. And then in verse 26, he says, Build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock, and in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. So build an altar unto the Lord God at this specific place and offer a burnt offering. But that can't be done until he first knocks down the pagan altar and the pagan place of worship in his own life. And that's what's taking place here. It's never good enough just to tear down or to remove that which is profane in our lives. It has to be replaced by building up that which is holy. It wouldn't be good enough just to knock down the altar to Baal because then you've just got a blank canvas, a void, if you will. You've got to then build up that which is holy and that which God desires. And Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43, 44, and 45. Here Jesus says, and I mentioned this last week, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, 
He walketh through dry places seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty. Now, it's not good enough to be empty. It says, swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. Then the last state of that man is worse than the first. You can't leave it empty. You gotta fill that void with God. You gotta fill that void with the Holy Spirit. Spend your time in church. Spend your time reading the Bible. Spend your time in prayer. Spend your time in fellowship. Spend your time serving the Lord. I'm gonna quit this. I'm gonna stop doing that. Well, that's great. But don't leave a void there. If you don't fill that with the Lord somehow, the enemy will take full advantage of it and the last state of that man will be worse than the first. And I think we've all seen that in different ways. Then in verse 27, Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Now, Gideon, you know, he's already kind of sniveled a little bit. You know, I'm just, I'm from a poor family, and I'm the least of my family, but you know, I don't know too many families that have ten servants. (laughs) And so, and he's got this other stuff going on too, so I think some of this is like, uh, cultural speak, just a way of kind of presenting, I can't do this. But bottom line, he takes 10 men, and he did basically what God said to do, being obedient to the word of God. I like that. Gideon tears down the altar in the grove by night because he's afraid that if he does it during the daytime, he's going to have a war in his hands. And maybe he's right. God doesn't chasten him or rebuke him for doing it at night because he did what God said to do. And if he had done it in the daytime, you know, he would have been fighting with his father, would have been fighting with the townspeople. It would have been a lot different kind of a deal. But the bottom line is he does what God says to do. Then we get to verses 28 through 31. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon the son of Joash hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, then let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar." Everybody wakes up and they find, oh no, you know, our altar has been taken down, our grove has been removed, and trying to figure out who did it. You know, when you take 10 servants along with you to help you do the job, it's not like there's going to be a lot of secrecy there. So pretty quick they figure out that Gideon is the one. And it's interesting that his dad steps in and intervenes for him. Now, Gideon's father, Joash, his name means Yahweh gives. Interesting name for a guy that's got an altar to Baal and a grove pretty much in his backyard. And again, I kind of think, here's a guy that probably saw the previous battles, the the deliverance of Israel and stuff, and what did it take? When he sees his son step up and do the right thing, he cuts down the grove, he destroys the altar, and then he offers a sacrifice to the true and the living God. I'm working on a little bit of supposition here, speculation. I wonder if there wasn't some conviction in his heart. I wonder if there wasn't just a reminder. You ever had that happen where you know you're supposed to do something and then somebody else does it in front of you? And it just cuts you to the quick? 
Because all of a sudden, he turns right around and goes, if he's a real god, let him defend himself. The same guy that was worshiping that false god probably the day before. And so perhaps with the Lord's conviction, I'm not really sure. But the psalmist describes these other gods, if you will, these lesser gods. In Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like them. So is everyone that trusts in them. And we could add to that, and they can't defend themselves either. These other lesser gods are not gods at all. They're just pieces of wood or chunks of stone. They're useless. And that's borne out in this passage. In verse 32, Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he had thrown down his altar. Basically, Gideon gets a nickname. And it means, let Baal plead. Let Baal defend himself. And so, um, now Gideon's got a cool, <laughs> cool nickname. But then we get to verse 33. Then the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. Essentially, this is, okay, now enter the Amalekites into the valley of Jezreel. And again, the map, if you see up here, here's Mount Tabor, Moray, Ophrah is where all this stuff we're talking about is taking place. And the Jezreel Valley, it starts out as the Jezreel Valley on the east, and as it works its way to the west and to the ocean, it becomes the Valley of Megiddo. And so it's about 15 miles long. It's about 12 miles wide. Again, this is the place where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place in the book of Revelation. I showed you this picture last week, but this is from the top of Mount Tabor, looking down into the Megiddo. The Jezreel Valley would be a little bit to the left. And so you can see the color is not real good because of the lighting in the room, but it's a very fertile place. It's a valuable piece of real estate because they can grow a lot of stuff there. Looking at it from the other angle, this is now looking towards Mount Tabor. The last picture was taken from the very top of that big hill in the background. And now from across that valley is a different time of the year. And you can see that it's a pretty big area. And so that's where these guys come in. Where do you suppose all the food is? This is a very fertile place. The Midianites are going right up to the table. You know, they're going, okay. They won't have to go too far to get the wheat and the barley and the grapes and whatever else is going on. So basically, they come in. And then I love verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The bad guys came in, but here comes the cavalry. But the Spirit of the Lord. Those are exciting words. You know, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us, hang on. It doesn't matter what the enemy looks like. It doesn't matter how many camels he's got or what's going on. When the Spirit of the Lord descends upon a man, something's about to happen. And I pray the Spirit of the Lord would just descend upon all of us at the same time. And boom, this is so awesome. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet. And Abiezer, basically his hometown, was gathered after him. Gideon blows a trumpet, and the town gathers to him. The same group of people that the day before wanted to kill him, it's a capital offense for taking down this pagan altar and chopping down the groves. Now when he blows the trumpet, they all come, and he sends them out as messengers. And he sends them out to the surrounding tribes. They go out to Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali to gather the people for war. And as the story progresses, we'll see it later on, 32,000 men respond. In this time of poverty and everything else, 32,000 men gather to come up against the Midianites. 
The interesting part is that, and we'll learn it later on, the Midianites have an army of 135,000. And with an army, you know, 135,000 men that can go to war, that means they probably had two or three or four, maybe even five times that number that were like women and children and everything else, you know, people that didn't go to war. So we're talking about a pretty significant group of people. But then verse 36, it says, And Gideon said unto God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. For he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. This is a famous story, and there's a lot of Christians that will use that phrase. I'm going to just lay a fleece before the Lord. But I'm here to tell you that when Gideon does this, he's not doing God's will. In fact, this is not a good example to follow. The Bible records what happens, but it doesn't necessarily this is the way to go. And it's not the way to go. Putting out a fleece is not a biblical method for determining the will of God. It's recorded, but again, I think it demonstrates a lack of faith. Let's look at these verses again. Verse 36, And Gideon said unto God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, I can stop there. If you're not lying to me, is another way of putting that, you've got to look at this. Look down at verse 37. Then shall I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. He's already implying that what God said may or may not be true. Now, if you're talking to me or I'm talking to you, we all kind of go look at each other kind of cockeyed like, uh, really? But he's not talking to you or me. He's talking to God. And God doesn't lie. God says what he means and means what he says. And this whole fleece thing is recorded, but it's not honoring to God. Now what you see here, if you read between the lines a little bit, is a picture of God's grace. Because God could have said, well, you lose. Next. <laughs> and find some other guy. But God is developing in Gideon his faith. God is meeting him in a sense where he's at. And I'm glad for that because God met me where I'm at and where I was at and where I'm going to be at. I'm not Mr. Perfect. I'm ashamed to think of some of the things I did earlier in my walk with the Lord and the ways that I behaved and things that I assumed. As much as I've kind of come down hard, this isn't the way to go, I have to understand God is dealing with this man and developing something in him that he's going to use. Because again, go back to verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. God is going to use this guy, and I like it. This approach is used by people like Gideon who lack the faith to trust God to do what he said he would do. It's not our place to test God or to prove God when God has already said, here's the deal. God, however, in this scenario, is gracious and patient and he accommodates Gideon through these two different tests. And I can't help but think about Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are just dust. I'm grateful for that, that God doesn't set such a high expectation for me for performance. <laughs> he knows I'm a goof and I'm going to mess up. 
And so he makes it little baby steps for him, and that's what he's doing. Now later in Bible history, we're going to see that there are going to be different things. People will draw lots and they'll do stuff like that, trying to figure out what's the will of God. And, you know, there's no formula for determining the will of God. That's the hard part. And what you see is that people will do different things, like the apostles, they cast lots to see who would replace Judas as an apostle. But that happened before Pentecost. After Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, in a sense, descends upon the church and the church is baptized in the Holy Spirit, after that, it's the Holy Spirit that leads the church. We don't throw the dice out and go, okay, snake eyes, let's go. The Holy Spirit leads and guides the church, and that's exactly how it ought to be. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Then in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's the trick most of the time. God, is this you or is this me? You get an idea in your head, you have a thought, or you see a need, and you want to meet that need or do that thing, and you begin to wonder, well, God, is this my idea? Is it your idea? And you're trying to discern God's will. And as Paul tells us here, when we lay ourselves on that altar, when we give ourselves over completely to the Lord and hold nothing back, and we're willing to do whatever he says to do, that's when we're going to know what his will is. Because otherwise we hold it back, and well, Lord... You let me know, and I'll evaluate that. It meets my criteria, and it's convenient, and won't cost me too much. Then I'll probably do it. Why would he bother to reveal what his will is to me or to you if that's our attitude? But if we're saying, you know what, Lord? You are my Lord, and whatever you say goes. You have final say, final authority in my life, and I lay my life before you. And then you'll be surprised how much you will know God's will. You'll just know. God will speak to you by the Spirit. He'll confirm it through His Word. He'll bring witnesses to you. You'll walk by the billboard and it says, do this. You go, oh, okay. And He'll give you the power and the grace to do it. And it's an awesome thing. Now, confirming God's will versus demanding proof are two different things. Getting with His fleece, He was kind of like demanding proof in a certain way. But there's been times when I've had an idea, a thought, or I thought I was supposed to do something. And I began to think it through too much. And I go, well, God, is this you or is this me? And so I'll ask for confirmation. I'll ask him to give me a word. And he'll do that. But I have to be willing to do whatever it is to begin with. And so it's a matter of faith. And we're told in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith... It's impossible to please God. We have to be willing to do those things. And you say to yourself, well, man, I need need more faith. Who doesn't? Faith is a gift from God, but there's a way we can get more faith. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more time we spend in God's word, the more time we spend memorizing his word, the more time we spend time talking about his word and just partaking of his word on a daily, moment-by-moment basis when you can't read it and think about it, meditate in it, that we view life and everything we know through the lens of God's word, it's amazing how our minds are transformed. Just like it says in Romans 12, 2, our minds will be transformed. How's that transformation going to take place? 
the Word of God. And so, what do we learn from this? Number one, we see that Gideon was called to a mission that he could not accomplish on his own, but God saw that he could do it, and he calls him mighty man of valor. The guy was a coward, but he took a coward, a guy that was hiding out, that had no warrior skills, and he pours his spirit into him, and he brings him along. He doesn't just say, okay, well, go out and fight the Malachites. First he says, okay, let's fight this battle in your home first. Are you willing to do that? And he's thinking, man, I'm going up against my dad, my family, my community. That had to look just as scary as the Amalekites ever could have looked. And God proved himself faithful and true and got him through that, didn't he? So he had something behind him. He goes, well, God, you were faithful in that. And so he prepares him for the next thing. He takes him in stages. He doesn't always take us from point A to point Z. First it's A to B and then B to C. And God will do the same thing in our lives. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to just step forward and say, okay, God, use me. I yield my life to you. Have your way. And then hang on, because God is going to take full advantage of that. Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that, that you've given us the victory, that you said you would go with us. And here you are, Lord, and, and here we are with you. Thank you, Father, that you're always there. Thank you that you always look upon us with such favor and such love. And Lord, we thank you again for our salvation. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We ask that you would help us, Lord, simply to walk in your ways and to please you. Guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching the conclusion of a two-part in-depth study of Judges chapter 6. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you.